Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So again, welcome to Toronto for those of you who are not residents, and also welcome to Toronto for those of you who are residents, and like Mina was saying, are going to have a different perspective on the city. Uh, the city is a fabulous place to practice. Uh, if you want to study interdependence, city is a great place to practice. Um, the text that we're going to look at is called the Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. Uh, this is the most chanted text in the Buddhist tradition on earth. Probably any hour of the day, somewhere in the world, there is uh, a group of people chanting the Heart Sutra. And for me, personally, the Heart Sutra is mixed up with a time in my life where I was quite uh, unemployed. I had a lot of time on my hands to practice. I was quite down at the time, and I used to walk a lot. And I had memorized the Heart Sutra, which I actually didn't have memorized anymore. It comes and goes, but I had it memorized, and, um, and I would just chant it all the time. So sometimes when I hear the chant of the Heart Sutra, like way, way back, I still kind of am aware of those times. Does anybody have that? You know, it's like you hear a pop song or something, and you're like back in your first relationship. You know. Um, so whenever I chant it, I feel like these waves of something I don't totally understand. And chanting is like that. Right? You chant it, and some days you're chanting it, and you're really seeing the meaning of it. And some days you chant something, and it's just mechanical. And some days you chant, and like the meaning is, you know, is percolated through with um, uh, some deep feeling that's hard to name. Um, so I thought what we would spend our time on today is just the title, uh, in keeping our tradition of going extremely slowly through texts and not finishing them. Uh, so the first word in the title is. Maha. And the word maha is actually a very esoteric term. Um, it means unsurpassably great. There is nothing outside of it. Uh, so this is greatness not in a comparative sense, 
this is a greatness that covers everything, which is a synonym for emptiness. Vast, undefinable, limitless emptiness. Which I would translate today as the most mysterious part of ourselves and the most mysterious part of others. And I think about this a lot when I bow. So in North America, when you meet somebody, you shake their hand. And usually do it like as tight as possible, just to kind of show who has the strength <laughs> in the relationship. Um, but in most cultures that you travel to, especially in Asia, when you meet somebody, what you do is you bow. When you greet them, you bow. When you say goodbye, you bow. And the handshake traditionally um, is, from my research, 130 years old. Uh, it was created as a greeting to show people that you're not carrying a gun. Um, but there's something about bowing that's very intimate, because when you bow, you leave some space between yourself and the other person. And so actually, I think bowing is much more intimate. And when I was in Japan uh, in April, um, one of the things I noticed in Kyoto, which is a, a very traditional city, especially for its size, is that the, the, the sort of lower rank that you are in society, the more deeply you bow. It's very, very beautiful. So someone will help you, you know, lock your bicycle up, and, and that person will bow to you much more deeply than the doctor. It's very interesting to, to see this. Um, and uh, the way people bow in Kyoto is so beautiful. They just throw their whole body into it. There's nothing left. So uh, I hope that we can bow like that. And what I mean by that is maha, is, is this sense of like completely going for it. Not holding anything back. Um, and then uh, you contact the most mysterious part of yourself. And this is the wonderful thing about bowing practice, is when you bow, you are bowing from the place that you don't control. And if you ever bow, and you bow from the place where you're really posturing, uh, you can feel it. It's not a really a bow. So, the word maha really has nothing to do with bowing and everything to do with bowing. Your life has everything to do with bowing. Our relationships have everything to do with being able to bow. So I think of yoga practice and I think of Buddhist practice having uh, their roots actually in the spirit of bowing. The spirit of what we call bhakti or devotion the spirit of being devoted to whatever's showing up in our lives. So when I say practice of sitting, I mean the practice of sitting right in the middle of your life. 
And that is maha. That is, is being so completely in your life that you can't see your life. Because when you're fully in your life, you don't see it. You see your life when you're like a little at a distance kind of witnessing it. When you're fully uh, with another, there's no other there. There's just what's happening. So what I'm interested in is reading the Heart Sutra from that perspective. That perspective of not holding back. What does the Heart Sutra have to do with my life? And that's why I love the, 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 the title, Maha unsurpassable. And what that means is um, it's, limitless. it's limitless. Go beyond. Um, one translation of the term maha is a great shout. <laughs> I love that. A great shout. Ha! <laughs> Just that place where we're not like half asleep, philosophizing, oh, I like what he's saying, yeah, that's interesting, that fits. How am I going to teach that when I get home? But actually to show up clearly. Maha is also the place beyond dichotomy. So the way most of our thinking happens is binary. I like this, I don't like this. And this is like really fast, right? Like it, don't like it. Want it, don't want it. Get away, get close, get away, get close. This is what we're doing all day long. Chocolate. Smoothie. <laughs> um, so in the Dharma, the, there are no dichotomies. The only dichotomy in the Dharma which stays is the dichotomy between wisdom and ignorance between seeing and not seeing. Actually seeing our lives clearly and that part of us that doesn't want to see at all. And you'll notice just within five minutes or maybe within two minutes, you can see that in yourself. The part that wants to see clearly and the part that doesn't want to see at all, that can't hear, that can't listen, that has no mysterious element. Because that part of us that's mysterious, or what I call beginner's mind, is um, threatening to the part of us that wants to control what we experience. We all have this. So this is maha. This is maha. It's much bigger than you can think. It's beyond what you can think. That's how great it is. So it's greatness without comparison. It's not like better than that. Like, oh, this is the Heart Sutra better than the Diamond Sutra, better than the Lotus Sutra, better than the Yoga Sutra. It's, it's greater than great. And they all are. Um, the second word is, um, well, we, trans we, say, we, we call it prajna. And that's just actually bad pronunciation. The word in Sanskrit is pragna. Um, which is made up of two words, uh, pra and nya. 
So let's say the word together. Nya. 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 Yeah. So nya, like jnana, is um, where you get the term gnosis, gnosis, which then becomes through the Greek and Latin eventually the word uh, knowledge. Eventually, the Americans drop the K. Or someone, it's probably them. Um, so the word knowledge. Uh, and pra means before. So usually it gets translated as wisdom. But if you look at it more etymologically, it means the knowledge before knowledge. What you know before you know. What you know before you know. Do you know what that means? How do you know something before you know something? And then, to trust that. I had, a, I had a, a difficult situation a few weeks ago, and, and so I was asking a lot of people who, you know, were smart people what they thought. And then, so, I emailed um, uh, my teacher, Enkyo Roshi, and said, you know, here's the situation. And she just wrote back saying, you don't need any advice. <laughs> <laughs> And, and this is a good, this is good advice. You don't need any advice. Like, how, how much of us, how, we, we do this, right? We have difficulty and we go ask all the experts, you know, what do you think about this? Yes, your brother or your mother or your therapist or your teacher or someone. And then also how sometimes we just have to be pinned to the wall, you know, and learn how to trust this pragya. This wisdom before wisdom. It's deeper than a gut feeling. As soon as you say a gut feeling, it's not even a gut feeling. It's before the gut feeling. And um, it arises in conditions. So it's the knowing that arises in the conditions of that circumstance. It's not the knowing that you um, use to cover over a situation. It's the knowing that arises out of the conditions of the situation. So it's exactly the same as that, that space that we call creativity. It comes out of that space. Um, and early on in Buddhism, um, the, the goal was to, to see life with prajna, to see life with wisdom. And if you ever study in Theravada Buddhism, they'll tell you all about how, you know, wisdom is, you know, the way you should look at your life. Um, but in our way of practicing here at Center of Gravity, we try to push that a little further and say it's not just about seeing your life with wisdom but actually becoming wisdom. Becoming wisdom. And in his commentary on the Heart Sutra, there's this radical named Hakwin, which I'm going to talk about a lot in the next two weeks. Hakwin wrote a commentary on the Heart Sutra. And in his section on the word uh, pragna, prajna, 
Hawkwind said, wisdom is not separate from you. Wisdom is not separate from you. Like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. So this is definition of enlightenment, actually. That wisdom is not separate from you. And you, with wisdom, you are wisdom. And what does that look like? It looks like beads rolling on a tray. Can you picture this? You have a tray with pearls on it. And what are the pearls? They're sudden, ready, and uninhibited. Isn't that nice? Sudden, ready, and uninhibited. How can we meet our lives like that? Like beads on a tray. So this is what the Heart Sutra is trying to uh, encourage you to do. Uh, those of you who study Patanjali's yoga, um, Patanjali listed as one of the five powers, um, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and prajna, and wisdom. Um, in the Eightfold Path, uh, in the Buddhist Eightfold Path, uh, the first element is vipassana, is right seeing, appropriate seeing, which, which leads right into deep wisdom, deep wisdom. And in Mahayana Buddhism, in the six paramitas, um, the crown jewel of all the paramitas is pragna, is wisdom, deep wisdom, knowing before knowing. And the problem is, is we get so caught up in ourselves. Has anybody noticed this? You get so caught up in yourself, and then everything we do when we're really caught up in ourselves is measured. It's rehearsed. It's comfortable. That's not beads rolling on a tray. And then so how do we find that place in us where we can respond without holding back? So this is what our practice is aiming at. And it has nothing to do with yoga, has nothing to do with Buddhism or Christianity or being a good Jew. It has to do with being human. And the goal of our practice is to become a human. It's much more interesting than being enlightened. Is actually to be a person. And one thing I've said a million times in this room is that we need more people. Look at how many people in the office buildings not far from here are going to work doing jobs that they don't love or are in lives that are pre uh, are, are, are uh, I lost the word I wanted to say circumscribed pre-circumscribed prefabricated pre-programmed you get the gist yeah sure you go to university get a job yeah. Yeah. Sure. 
So it's easy to say, oh, well, those people are doing that. Well, what about me? What about me? And this is this great paradox for all of us, is that we all want to be comfortable, and then slowly, slowly, Tabby Joyce used to always say that, slowly, 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 um, the comfort starts to kill you. You get the right apartment, right appliances. Um, the Buddha says, a house gathers dust. So slowly, slowly, you get all the comforts, you get all the goals you wanted, and yet uh, you're haunted by this incompleteness. Because sometimes the, the comforts actually start to eat away at that, that part of us that has to be able uh, to move on the tray. Sudden, ready, uninhibited. Or maybe you just can't forgive. Or maybe there's grief that you can't allow yourself to feel. Or maybe there is trauma, small or large, that you just don't want to look at. And then so we're not ready. We're not in our lives. In uh, traditional Buddhism, and you see this in many of the yoga traditions, uh, the core of the teaching is impermanence. The core teaching is impermanence. And it's actually a shock, always to us, when impermanence really shows up <coughs> in our lives. You can have a philosophy or an ideology that embraces impermanence, but actually most of us don't build our lives on the ground of impermanence. Um, we don't embrace the implications of impermanence. We're trying to create a life that is strict and rigid so that it's predictable, comfortable. Um, so in traditional yoga and Buddhism, um, the focus is on seeing how in the core of life what we begin to open to in the deepest level of our heart is impermanence, is change. And again, you may have a philosophy of change, but actually to use impermanence as the ground on which you build a life um, is really one of the core features of early Buddhism. Later though, in Mahayana Buddhism, which is the Heart Sutra, um, the core teaching is not so much impermanence, it's emptiness. That if everything is impermanent, it's impermanent because it doesn't exist in the way you think it exists. It's empty of what you think it is. So one way to look at a relationship is that it's impermanent. Has anyone ever had this experience before? <laughs> When the Buddha talks about suffering, he lists different causes of suffering. And one of them is um, uh, 
being apart from what you love. You have a relationship with somebody you love, and they get sick, and they die. Or um, you have to leave them, or they leave you. So uh, impermanence can really cause suffering. From the Mahayana perspective, though, which is the era of the Heart Sutra, um, if you really look at impermanence, what you find is emptiness. That actually the reason why the relationship is impermanent is not because it's changing all the time, but it's because actually fundamentally it doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist in the way you think it exists. It's constantly shifting. You can count on it like you can count on the lake, but if you really go have a look at the lake, it's constantly shifting. The color, I mean, Lake Ontario is an amazing lake to study because the colors are constantly, constantly changing. Dogen, who comments also on the Heart Sutra, and we're not going to get into it too much, but if you ever want a great read, check out Dogen's commentary on the Heart Sutra. Um, Dogen says, well, actually, impermanence and emptiness, that's Buddha nature. That's actually your true nature. That's what you're seeing. You think that all this difficult stuff you're seeing is just difficult stuff? Or that you're messed up? Well, actually, that's Buddha nature. And to see that, that's pregnant. That's knowing before knowing. So knowing is to cut away your understanding. It's a kind of renunciation. Sometimes people see the empty nature of things without study or understanding. And then they're unprepared and they get freaked out. You see this a lot with drug use. People have the experience where they really see impermanence. They really see suffering or they really see uh, interdependence even. And yet they don't have the study or the view, the appropriate view that allows them to hold that. They're just seeing the surface of suffering. They can't see its background. So that's also pregnant, is to see a foreground and a background and be able to move back and forth. Last month at Center of Gravity, we studied the text Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shinru Suzuki, which is a series of lectures. One thing he says in the lecture is, um, things are much more beautiful because they're out of balance, but only if you can see their background. If you only see the foreground of things, then it's suffering all the way through. Everything's shot through with suffering. But actually, to be able to see suffering against its background is also to see beauty. So, maha prajna. Any questions about those terms before we move on to the rest of the title?
paramita. So the term paramita is translated as perfection. Uh, parama means the highest or the most distant or most excellent. Um, para also means beyond, a far bank, shore, or boundary. And mita means that which has arrived. So paramita usually gets translated as that which has gone beyond. But actually, you could also translate it as fully arriving. And I would do this because when we say gone beyond or gone to the other shore, the problem with that is, is it makes it feel like we're, we've, we've, we're trying to get somewhere. But if you understand ita as arriving, paramita also means uh, the perfection of being fully arrived. Something like excel. To excel. excel yeah, you could say to excel. Yeah. To, to excel. To go beyond, but the beyond is right here. It's not over there. And there's a funny Sufi story like this where a, a student is standing on one side of a riverbank. Wait, how does it go? One side of the riverbank saying. Oh, I forgot how it goes. Student's saying one side of the riverbank. Oh, and yelling to the other student saying. Come, come over, come to the other shore. And the other student is, is doing the same thing. Come, come to the other shore. <laughs> you know, she's saying, I'm on the other shore. <laughs> Back and forth, this goes on forever. Anyways. Um, uh, the six practices of a bodhisattva, so the six practices of somebody who makes of their life a life of service uh, are called the paramitas, six paramitas in Mahayana Buddhism. And they're uh, giving, uh, full generosity, uh, morality, energy, patience, concentration, and wisdom. So generosity, morality, energy, virya, patience, concentration and wisdom going beyond my interpretation of this is that if you take the, the so the question to me is you know why are those called the paramitas um, what does that have to do with going beyond and I think it's because there's this encouragement that you take those qualities like generosity and you you only make them into forms of wisdom by going beyond them. So generosity beyond generosity. So if you're generous and you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm really giving a lot lately, <laughs> then that's not pregnant. You see, that's a little outside of, oh, I've become such a generous person. And you ask people, have you noticed how generous I've been? <laughs> Wisdom beyond wisdom. Energy beyond energy. 
So that giving, when you go past giving, is just a reflex. It's just a reflex to actually be generosity. Whole body and mind are generous. It's not something you cultivate. It's not something you achieve. It's something fully arrived at. It's not another shore that you get to by doing a certain practice. So giving, instinctual giving. So the giving is a reflex of living. Right there all the time. The next word is hridaya, which in Sanskrit means the heart. And it has a double meaning, of course, like every time we use the word heart, it refers anatomically to your heart, but it also refers to uh, the heart of the matter. Um, when I studied psychology, I studied with a maverick psychologist named James Hillman. And, uh, he used to like telling the story about being in Zurich, um, working with this elderly woman who was dying. And he came in to see her, and she said that she was having problems with her heart. And um, so then he uh, had a look at her heart. And when she saw his eyes going to her heart, she said, oh, not that heart. He used to really like telling that story. It's the scene of being in the hospital and the doctor's being really obsessed with her heart. And she knows he's a psychologist and he comes in and she says, oh no, it's not the heart everybody's working on right now here in the hospital. That's not where the problem is. So Hridaya is both of these hearts. Our anatomical heart that we have to take care of and the heart of hearts, which we have to take care of also. So, this is the Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. Um, there's a version of it that's 100,000 lines. There's a version of it that's 25,000 lines. There's a version of it that's 8,000 lines, which is called the Diamond Sutra. There's this version, which is one page long. And then there's a shorter version, which is just a letter which is the Sanskrit letter A, which apparently has in it the entire heart sutra. And you can feel it if you just go, oh. That's the heart sutra, right there. And the word sutra, of course, uh, is where you get the word suture, which is to stitch together, to tie together, um, strung together. And philosophically, it means aphorisms that are strung together. Um, but in Zen, the word sutra is a stringing together of teachings that are not about something. So, for example, a couple of months ago we studied here, was it a couple of months ago we did the Mountains and Waters Sutra? You know, and this title was a play on the term sutra. 
this idea that if you really study mountains and rivers, that's the sutra. And it's a play on this idea that you can't write a sutra about mountains and rivers. Mountains and rivers are the sutra. And it's based on a poem by a Chinese hermit named Su Dung Po, who wrote a poem saying, the Buddha's body is a mountain. Do you know this poem? Do you remember we, we studied it? The Buddha's body is the mountain. His ri the rivers are the long, broad tongue. All night, I listen to the sutras. In the morning, how will I ever explain any of this? So he's lying there in his bed. Picture you're in China. The monasteries were always built in mountains beside rivers. He's in his little room, listening to the sound of the river, not sleeping. And then suddenly he has this experience that all the mountains, that's the Buddha's body. That's my body. I'm these mountains. And these rivers, that's the Buddha's tongue. That's my tongue. And they're speaking sutra music. And all that music is all the teachings of all the sutras right there in the sound of the river, which is moving through my body. And then he comes out of it, right? And then he goes, oh, and in the morning, how will I explain any of this? <laughs> so uh, from the Zen perspective, the whole sensory world is a sutra. All sense experience is a scripture. So let's look at the first line. Avalokiteshvara, while practicing, so Avalokiteshvara is the Buddhist deity of compassion. And the word Avalokiteshvara means one who hears the sounds of the world. And it's said that this is the deepest practice of compassion, is to be able to listen. And it's being juxtaposed here with wisdom. That what is wisdom? Wisdom is compassion. And what is compassion? It's this ability to listen to the cries of the world. When we're wrapped up in our own cravings, we can't hear the sounds of the world. And that ranges from birds to people who need food, to people who need shelter, uh, or maybe to those closest to us who are calling out and we can't hear because we're in our one-track mind. This happens to me all the time. Maybe it happens to you if any of you live with somebody. You have a one-track mind. Yesterday, Karina was really nauseous, and I just wanted to practice yoga. <laughs> so then it, she, there was no food in the fridge. So you can't really send a nauseous person to the store to make them sell the meal. But I was like, I'm going to practice yoga. <laughs> all the time we do this, right? Not listening. And this is a good uh, wake-up for all of us. If you want to borrow a nauseous person, 
when <laughs> time over the next 12 days. <laughs> so Avalokiteshvara, so this is really interesting that Avalokiteshvara is practicing deep prajna paramita. I love this. Uh, another translation is Avalokiteshvara is moving in deep prajna paramita. So she's swimming in those waters. Avalokiteshvara. And um, uh, Hakwin, who I'm not going to get into too much today, but Hakwin has an amazing way of his comment on this, this, uh, this comment on practicing deeply, or uh, Hakwin, here's his commentary on that. He says, it's sleeping at night, moving around in the daytime, urinating and passing excrement, clouds moving, streams flowing, leaves falling, flowers scattering. Isn't that nice? What, what's wisdom beyond wisdom? What is that? I mean, you might have an idea of, oh, you know, I have to be in a monastery with the right robes and the right chants, and, or like, can't be in a city in the heat of the summer. And Hakwin says, it's sleeping at night, moving around in the daytime, urinating, passing excrement, clouds moving, streams flowing, leaves falling, flowers scattering. That's the beads rolling on it. Leaves scattering. So Avalokiteshvara is doing deep prajna paramita. And what is that? It's the clouds. It's the fish swimming right now. And the squirrels breathing. Just like you're breathing. Simultaneous. Do you think that deep prajnaparamita is separate from you? Why are you working so hard? You're sitting on it, breathing it. It's not separate from you. You know, there's no difference between early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, between yoga and Buddhism, or Buddhism and Judaism. I don't think there's so much of a difference. Because uh, really what, what happens in any tradition is that over time, as it becomes more efficient, it starts valuing compassion more and more and more. And if you look in any tradition, you can see that over time, as the tradition matures, uh, devotional practices become more and more about compassion. And from the perspective of the Heart Sutra, compassion and emptiness go hand in hand. If you understand emptiness, it comes from compassion. If you're moved to do something and to act, it comes from a realization of emptiness.
if you analyze the Heart Sutra as an intellectual or an academic, it's very nihilistic. It's very nihilistic. Everything's empty. Everything's changing. If you give this to a teenager, it's a recipe for depression. It's like everything's empty. Why should I get out? Why should I clean my room? But the Heart Sutra is exactly the opposite. If you emphasize emptiness, you get connection. Reality is empty of everything except relationship. So emptiness reveals the interconnectivity of everything. And that is what Avalokiteshvara swims in. That's what the deity of compassion swims in. And the deity of compassion is not separate from you. It's this alignment. So, I'm going to stop there. Are there any questions or comments? Could you talk a bit about language? I mean, these were, these words come from Sanskrit teachings. They come from Chinese interpreting Sanskrit teachings, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah. How, you know, how, uh, you know, we get, just to be simplified, emptiness versus uh, impermanence. Like, were they really the same thing at the time? No. Nope. No, nope. they were brought together in the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra really crystallizes this way of breaking things down and seeing everything in terms of emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. But, then, um, but emptiness is an English word. So I'm just trying to. Yeah, so the word in Sanskrit is, is shunya, is empty, or shunyata, emptiness which comes from the verb shu, which means to swell. So if someone's pregnant, they're shu, they're swollen. And it said the world is so swollen, it's so pregnant with everything else that there is no uh, thing you can call the world. So my arm is so swollen with water, with heat, with chemicals, with the sky, that you can't really say it's an arm or even a human arm. This human arm is mostly made out of non-human elements. Right. And so linguistically, it's my arm. But actually, really, if you look at it closely, it's actually the natural world. And then what's the natural world? That's also another category I've just created. Right? So emptiness is saying everything is so swollen with everything else that all you have is relationship. That's all that's left. It's relationship. But then I would even go further and say, but actually, you don't even have relationship, because that implies things in relationship with each other. You have to go past that also. And so in, in Japanese, the word for emptiness, it got translated through the Chinese as ku, K-U, which is the sky. Because now the sky is this thin atmosphere and so on. But once upon a time, the sky was considered like this vast space that just went on forever. And that's how they translated. So Kaz Tanahashi, who's a uh, contemporary translator, 
he translates the word shunyata not as emptiness, but as boundlessness. And we're going to get more into that. Boundlessness. Everything is boundless. Talk about relationships. Certain things have more relationships with certain other things. Okay. Yeah. So it's not always the same. No. But that's not true either, right? We like human beings like that. Oh well, I have a relationship with so and so. Well, you do, and you, you also have a relationship with A, B, C, D, E, F. Where did yeah. this text originate, and who's the author? We have no idea. No well, it was distilled from these larger texts. But the actual Heart Sutra, there's a German, I think she's German, Jan Natier, I think her name is, uh, uh, academic, who has shown, uh, about 10 years ago, she wrote a great paper where she showed how the Heart Sutra was actually not a Sanskrit text brought to China. It was actually a Chinese distillation of the larger version of the Prajnaparamita back translated into Sanskrit to make it seem older. It's kind of interesting. So actually it's a Chinese text, not a Sanskrit text. That's why it's better to go to the Chinese and Japanese words than to, to do this. The, the, Sanskrit. And if you chant it in Japanese, do you guys chant it in Japanese? The, the word all through it is mu. Mu, 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 mu. No, 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 no. And there's this feeling when you're chanting it. And you should do this when we chant the English too. Just really emphasizing the no. Because that's the emptiness piece. That's the piece going, oh, you think it's this? No. No path, no wisdom, no gain, no arm, no finger. No. no. Cut that out. No. So, pulling the rug out from under you. I would like to stop here, have a little break, and then we're going to do some practices to kind of integrate of what we've covered. So I think we got through the title, the first two words. <laughs> so let's take a break for 10 minutes.